welcome to this latest episode of Comeback. My guest today is Martin Pierce, who is the author of Spymaster, The Life of Britain's Most Decorated Cold War Spy, and head of MI6, Sir Morris Oldfield, his uncle. We're going to talk more about the book, experiences, and more. Martin, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Connor. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, absolutely. And just to get a bit of a background, um, your uncle was the head of MI6, is that correct? That's right, yes. Yeah, and what was it like then growing up? Because I believe that you used to receive letters from him, but just under the name M. Yes, well, he, was, he used to send postcards from wherever he was stationed, and he'd always sign them off as M. Um, so as kids growing up in the 70s, when the James Bond phenomenon was at its height, it was quite exciting to be getting these postcards from the person who was actually in the role in real life at the time. And would you like tell your friends, like, oh, this is my uncle, or would it very much be hush-hush? Once it got into the public domain, um, we, you know, everybody knew. So there was no secret then. It was before that, when it was hushed up, um, nobody really spoke of it. But as soon as it went into the public domain, everyone would start asking about him. And, and he was in all the papers, so people knew that he was in that role. Yeah, I see. And what are your own experiences of him in terms of your encounters? What was your relationship like with Morris? He was uh, he was a very, um, he was a lovely family man, very friendly, the sort of person you could sit and chat with. Um, he was very clever and he'd always invest, when you, were, when you were talking to him, you always felt that you were being interrogated a bit. He'd always ask you interesting questions and challenge whatever you said to him, um, but in a nice, kindly way. Um, he was the sort of person you could sit and have a lovely cup of tea with and uh, and 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 he, he would tell you of his travels. He didn't obviously give away any secrets, but he would tell you where he'd been. He'd tell you his uh, favourite places, um, and not, not, but he wouldn't talk about his work. Yeah, I see. And obviously, I suppose this is you know an opinion, but how do you think he managed to transition from such an, I'd say such an interesting and unique job into, say, normal civilian life? How was that transition for him? I think he treated them entirely separately. Uh, when I spoke to, I spoke to John Le Carré to drop a name about him because he served under Morris and knew him quite well. And he said he felt that he had two lives. He had a professional life and a personal life. And as far as possible, he just kept them entirely separate. So he would switch on and off between roles in a way that, I know we all do that between home and work to an extent, but he probably did it to more of an extent than most people. Yeah, absolutely. And how did he initially become the head of MI6 in this role? How did this work? He was recruited into MI6 from the army in 1947 after the war and he rose through the ranks quite quickly uh, but this was the days when most of the people at the top of the service were Old Etonians or Winchester College and Oxbridge whereas Morris was from a very um, humble farming background in Derbyshire a grammar school boy with no connections so he rose entirely on merit um, he was overlooked for the top job twice in the 1960s when it went to somebody of the standard profile uh, and by the end it was when things were going badly wrong for MI6 that the officers with themselves lobbied 
the Prime Minister, who was then Ted Heath, to have him promoted to the top job. Yeah, and what do you think it was about him, in terms of maybe his character, that got him that role? What do you think were his key? He, I think he, he benefited from having had this local, uh, low, low, low class, if you like, um, very humble background, because he meant that he was, he understood how people were motivated. He understood why, <clears throat> why people did what they did at the, at the most basic of levels. Whereas some of the more highfalutin officers, they just existed in a world of privilege in gentlemen's clubs and uh, Oxbridge and the, and the like, where they didn't encounter the real world at all. Whereas Morris, when he travelled the world, he would go and stay, if he went to Malaya, he'd go and stay in the townships and uh, stay with the, close to the people. If he, if he went to America, he'd go to the heart of America. He wouldn't just spend all his time in Washington. He'd, he'd go and speak with farmers. He knew farmers in Kenya. Um, so he got to know what was happening on the ground in a way that was far more effective than just, just operating from an office. Yeah, I see. And I suppose to maybe sum up for those who wouldn't be aware of the actual role that he was involved in, what would he be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? That's a very interesting question. He'd A lot of the time he'd spend... Um, he, 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 unlike most M's out of the films where you see them sitting behind a desk all the time, he did travel himself quite a lot. But a lot of the time he'd be receiving reports from agents and officers all over the world. And Morris's role would be to analyse these reports, see whether he thought they were genuine, see what he thought they could add. And if he felt that they were genuine, he could take them to the Foreign Secretary or the Prime Minister and say this is happening in, say, Zimbabwe, and I think we need to deal with it. Or this is happening in Vietnam, and I think we need to deal with it. Or, by contrast, in Vietnam again particularly, this is happening in Vietnam, we need to keep well out of it. Um, he, he had a very good in antennae around the world uh, at anal anal analysing what was happening, and he was very good at dealing with what they call raw intelligence, which is intelligence that's just been gathered um, and nobody could really tell whether it's genuine or not. He'd got that knack of saying, yeah, that could, that, that's, that's, that's really happening. Um, and he, he'd got a particular skill for dealing with complicated stuff and simplifying it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that was vital. And also, from the danger aspect, what sort of danger would he have been in if, I suppose, what he was doing was seized upon by the wrong people? He personally was in danger that we know of um, only the once or twice when he was targeted by the IRA when he was in London, and they had they found the biggest bomb ever used in wartime, outside wartime rather, hanging from a railing outside his flat in London. Uh, luckily, it was diffused. It was spotted by some off-duty policemen, um, and he was a regular churchgoer. And once they put a device in the organ of the church he went to, uh, which Morris had actually paid for, and the device went off and burned the church down. So he always had to be aware. Um, and the threats were, were very sinister because it was always people in the shadows. People who would wish to do him harm were always, uh, they were, they were well-funded, people like the IRA. The Russians, for example, would never touch him because he was too 
uh, way above their pay grade. They couldn't get near him. But the IRA, who were their tentacles all around London, they were a big threat to him. Um, he kept himself out of Russia for obvious reasons. He kept himself personally out of the Eastern Bloc altogether. His travels were basically taken as, around safe places as far as he could. And he would send agents into these places um, to come out with the information because he was known. He'd have been a target. So he, he had to play a very calm, sensible game. There was the, there was, there was the story, however, when um, the defector, Oleg Gordievsky, was coming out of Russia and Morris wanted to actually go in personally and, and fetch him. And I think he was just so excited to have such a scalp on, it, on, his, on his slate that he wanted to do it. And he had to be talked out of it by the prime minister. He had to be told, no, you're in danger if you go there. You stay out of it. And he knew that in, in reality. And that's how the way he normally operated. Yeah. And what do you think were his motivations for doing the job he did? Obviously, by no stretch was it easy or simple at all. What do you think made him continue to do it? It was a, a great sense of loyalty and pride in his country, um, which, he, which he discovered during the war. And he felt that he had a particular skill, as in deep, very deep level of intelligence and in, uh, intellectual abilities, that he knew that other people didn't necessarily have. And he felt that anything he could do to keep his country safe is what he would do. So whereas the soldiers that, that would sometimes serve under him were skilled fighters, he was skilled about telling them where they should be fighting and where they shouldn't be fighting. And it was a sense of loyalty and pride in his country that, that drove him. Yeah, and when I think of, say, spies or espionage, as you mentioned earlier, James Bond, again, that's what comes to mind straight away for me, and I'm sure it does for many others. What, I suppose, are the biggest misconceptions about perhaps the role that Morris did? Are there any real misconceptions that stand out for you? I think probably the obvious one is that most of his agents and officers aren't armed. They, go, they don't go around killing people. Um, they, they, back in the 50s, there were the odd escapades that they got involved with that went wrong. But in the main, they're not armed. They don't have a licence to kill. They are an intelligence-gathering information service. That, you know, you see James, around, James Bond going off around the world, taking out dictators and sh um, shooting other assassins and all the rest of it. In Morris's world, his people would be travelling around finding out who, who these people were and making sure that the authorities got to them. They weren't, uh, they didn't have hired killers. Right, I see. And in terms of the book then, how did the book or initial thoughts on writing the book, how did it all begin? Well, for, for a number of years, when after Morris died, I... I... And it, I never got round to it until his brothers and sisters, who are my grandma and her brothers and sisters, got really old. And you suddenly started to think, if I didn't do it now, then all these people are going to be lost. We're not going to be able to talk to them. We won't uh, have these conversations. So I needed to get on with it. And the same applied to, obviously, the people he was in uh, working with, you know, the politicians, the, the fellow spies most of them were getting to an age where they were starting to, to die off. And since I did the book, at least nine, if not more, of my most important contacts have died. So got there just in time, effectively. And I just decided my, I would start by 
finding the people who I knew were still alive and going to talk to them. So obviously it was relatives to start with. And then I contacted David Owen, who was foreign secretary in Morris's last term of uh, last year of, uh, of service and arranged to go and see him at his house. And he was a great help to me. He put me in touch with a literary agent. He put me in touch with a spy who he'd served, who had served with Morris, who was an author, also an author now. And he set me off on this trail of um, finding people. And once that started to snowball, uh, it it went from there, really. Yeah. And how long would you say the book writing process was? Was it a couple of years or more or less? In total, probably about four years, uh, but not constantly. For, for one reason above all, which is that trying to get people to talk to you is a challenge. So, for example, uh, going back to John Le Carre, when I wanted to talk to him, I first contacted him in uh, 2013 and got a got knocked back. He was too busy, blah, blah, blah. It was 2016 when he finally contacted me and said, yes, he was ready to talk. So you can see the gap between approaching somebody and being able to interview them can be quite challenging. It's not a case of just ringing up and saying, can I speak to you next Thursday? It's a case of, I might not speak to you at all, or I would need to get that vetted by MI6, or I need to think about it. And so the times involved in that are the, are the biggest challenge in a way, because you're not in control of those timings. Yeah. And in terms of then your research, you'll have different sources who tell you different things. How do you go yeah. about compiling all that together to make it you know, a condensed picture of Morris's life. How do you go about making your research slightly smaller and more condensed? Yeah, it's, um, there was an awful lot, obviously. I mean, I must have read, oh, crikey, I don't know, hundreds of books and lots of files. Uh, first thing I always did was make sure anything that I was planning to put in, that I could verify it from at least two good sources. So anything that was a one-off um, story that I heard, unless I could verify it, it, it was discarded very quickly. Um, and be, beyond that, it, it, it is just about thinking about which points actually move the story on. You know, you could get on a, off on a tangent with individual little stories about, about different escapades, but unless they added something positive to the story, uh, it was just, that was just sort of thing was filled. So you have to decide which ones are the ones that move things on, such as him going to America to sort out the problems caused by Kim Philby in the in the fifties. So that's obviously a pivotal thing for the whole of the British Secret Service, not just for Morris personally. And that's the sort of story that shows up his importance. Whereas perhaps the fact that he would find a job for someone working at NASA, um, that's just a story in its own end that actually doesn't take you anywhere. So it's bit, you have to be quite disciplined about what to leave in and what to leave out because the publisher will only let you have 120,000 words, 400 pages roughly. And unless you're, a, unless you're JK Rowling, they're not going to waste the paper on a 800 pound and an 800 page book uh, on that basis. So you've got to be very disciplined about what you cut in and cut out. Yeah. And when writing a biography in general, but I suppose especially when you actually knew the, knew the person, what are the main challenges that you have in, you know, really capturing that person? I suppose the 
the hardest thing when you do know him and you do get accused of it is having an inherent personal bias towards them. Uh, so if I was just going to write a, a hagiography of saying how wonderful it was, that wouldn't have got past the uh, publisher. You have to be in, as 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 uh, open-minded as you can. You have to be prepared that some of the things you find out may not be that uh, good and that you've still got to put them in. So you, you've got to try and take yourself one step back from it. Don't think of what does this relationship that I have with the subject bring to it. You think, oh, hang on, I need to start. The only thing I can bring to this is the advantage that because I'm a relative, people will speak to me. And that's the probably the, the, the key difference is to have that sense of separation, to use that uh, connection that you've got to enable you to find the information. But once you've got the information, to treat it honestly and don't just put in the things that suit you. Yeah. And in your research, were there any surprises that you found out about Morris uh, that perhaps differed from your personal relationship? And if so, what were the main surprises? I think there's probably an element of um, truth in the rumours that, that during the First World, the Second World War, when he was a very young uh, lieutenant colonel in the intelligence corps, he was probably involved in some, uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying torture really, but the, I think it's quite likely that he was, he did to an extent was involved in waterboarding people and um finding information the way that he wouldn't normally approve of and he was certainly wouldn't have given the impression of being in favour of. And, but he learned from that. And he had a saying that said, uh, defectors are like grapes, the first pressings are the best. He learned from in the war that you didn't learn much by those kind of interrogation methods. But I was surprised to find that he had, by all accounts, been involved in it in some way. I'd have thought he'd have turned his back on that from the from the outset but i i also accept that he was learning the job and if that's what people did then to a point you'd have to go along with it yeah and what was the reaction then once you'd finally got everything together the book's been published from the i suppose critics reviewers i've seen it's fared quite positively reviews from the times the telegraph etc but but in terms of the people around you like maybe family members uh, friends, etc. What were their reactions to the book and the picture and the whole story? Uh, mostly positive. Uh, there were one or two older family members who didn't like the fact that I went into Morris's sexuality. Um, those kind of stories they'd rather just never came out and never wanted to talk about again. Now, my view was he'd done nothing wrong as far as I could find out. And I thought it was important to, to state that. They would have rather forget about it all in many ways, but I, I didn't set out to clear his name exactly. But if, the, if, if there was a chance that people had been trying to smear him, I thought I owed it to him to put that right, even if it was painful to have the details all hawked out again. But apart from one or two elderly relatives who've now since come round to it, I have to say they're all now overwhelmingly supportive. Um, the the reaction was was largely positive. Even some of the MI6 people I spoke to have been in touch afterwards. Who were they were a bit sceptical, 
to start with, and they've come back and said, yes, you've done a fair a fair account of of how we we found him and how we knew him. It was that was quite gratifying to know. Um, say so, it's un, unusually in the main the press was supportive, the officers were supportive. It was just one or two family members who didn't like the past being stirred up. Yeah, I see, and I suppose then. What were the main challenges you faced in writing the book? As in, was it getting through that point of getting rid of personal bias? Was it the long hours in the research? What were the main difficulties you faced throughout the whole writing process? I, I suppose that the single, it's a very basic practical thing, is funding it when you're having to put hours and hours and hours and hours in. And if you try to do it on an hourly wage, you're probably talking pence an hour. Uh, in, in the grand scheme of things. You know, the, the advance from the publisher was nice, but it wasn't enough to live on. So you still had to carry on doing other things as well. Uh, again, unless you're J.K. Rowling, these days, most authors, even very famous ones, don't get very much advance. So you have to fund it. And that's the, that's the single biggest challenge is doing little jobs to, to try and make sure that, you know, if, uh, and trying to juggle them around the availability of the people you need to see. So I do some building work and, and such the like. It's difficult to say to a client, actually, this week I've got to go to uh, London to interview the foreign secretary. And they'll say, well, my roof needs doing. And so it is a, it's a very bizarre kind of uh, contrast between the day-to-day life that you've got to lead to make sure you can fund it all and then mixing with some very unusual and interesting people to deliver the project you need to do. Yeah, and after it was all finished, uh, I was going to use the word any regrets, but I mean to say, were, th- were there any moments or any parts of the book that you thought, oh, I wish I would have done that differently, I wish I'd included this or left this out? Did you have any, I suppose, regrets on that front, or were you able to just accept that it was done? I had to draw a line, um, and I think I had that that's... I think the fact that it's it's there, it's contractual. There's nothing much you can do about that. Is is it, it makes it easier. I had to. I was lucky enough to be able to do a, a, a introduce some more information that came to light between the first edition on the hardback and the next edition on the paperback. So I was able to put in some extra color of things that came out then. Uh, since then, there, there's probably enough material for for almost another book. Um, whether it's of enough interest beyond uh, my own uh, network, I don't know. But I had to treat that as a standalone project and assume that things would would come out afterwards that I couldn't have known about. It's, there's the odd thing that um, that I wish I'd known more about at the time, particularly like his involvement in Cyprus when they had the partition of North and um, Northern Cyprus and the rest, where, where which he was apparently heavily involved in. But there's nothing much documented. And then I have since, since met somebody who was involved. Uh, and I think that aspect of that, had I been able to explore it, would have been quite interesting. And that's something I'd like to look into in future. Yeah, and since you published that book, has there been any subsequent books that you've written as a result, any that are similar to Spymaster? I'm currently engaged in one on the Malayan emergency, which came out of that in so much as Morris was in, instrumental in the intelligence effort there. Um, and that's proving a long, a long project with, with everything else that I've got going on. 
but I'm I'm very committed to that and uh, and it is an interesting subject and the other one I'm doing one about the the trade unions in the 70s which were infiltrated to a great degree by communists so there's a lot of crossover there between what was happening in the wider world with MI6 and the closer to home world uh, of um, the winter of discontent and such times yeah and we have mentioned you know the parts about the funding and making time and allowances are there any other aspects you think that aspiring authors should be aware of in starting out their journey i think um the first thing i'd say is 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 definitely is go for it until you start writing it down you don't know whether you can do it or not um the amount of people who've come up to me since and said do you know i've I've got such and such in my family that I'd love to write a story about, um, but I don't know what to do. Well, the answer is until you start, you will never know. And it's that taking that step is, is the crucial one. If you get a good story and you're confident in it, one way or the other, it will get out there. So I would first, first thing I say is, is really don't say, oh, I can't, or it's not the right time. If it matters to you, do it. And then you can't overemphasize enough the importance of getting an agent involved because they will give you an honest appraisal. If they think it's a good idea that's commercial, they'll go for it. If they think it's a, a vanity project that you're just doing for your own gratification, they'll say so. And there are plenty of people who will publish that for you, for your own fee, for your own pleasure. And it can be just as re rewarding in a personal level. But you've got to. You, I don't think you can. I don't think everyone. I don't think everyone can expect their idea to become a bestseller. But I do think everyone can write a book that will be important to them. And I think in the end, that's probably the thing. Is if it's important to you, it's worth doing. Absolutely. And I suppose coming to the end of the conversation, Martin, what are your aims for the future? You did mention another book uh, a few moments ago. Uh, what else have you got on the horizon, and what would you like to achieve going forward? Well, with Spymaster, we're in discussions at the moment about bringing it to the screen. It's been optioned for um, for television. And so I'm very, very much looking forward to working with the producers and being involved in the screenplay for that, if we can get the development funding sorted, which I'm quietly confident about. So I, that, I think that will be the real big challenge and the real big ambition for me is to see that story and Morris's story in particular brought to a wider audience the sort of people who won't necessarily read the book but will tune in on Netflix and I think it will make a great um, tribute to him and an interesting story all around if it can be brought to the screen and I very much want to be involved with that. And where can we find out more about the book online or on social media? Yes you 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 it's on it's on Amazon obviously um, and I, I, I have a little Facebook page, if you look at Martin Pierce writing, which has a bit about it. And I can, I'll be happy to answer any questions people have if they contact me through that. Sounds excellent. Martin, thank you very much for your time today and all the very best with your future projects. Thank you, Connor. It's nice to speak to you.